to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. All of it is delivered in 50 minutes or less because you don't have time to waste. Let's get started. Hello, podcast listeners. It's Rhea with you once again. I have a very, very special guest with me, my very good friend, Jane Giver, president of JC Giver, which for my money, and quite literally my money, is the best-in-class, top-notch grant writer, fundraiser, consultant to the stars. So we're very, very excited to have Jane with us today, and we're going to talk fundraising. So thanks so much for being here, Jane. Thank you, Rhea. Tell me a little bit about how you first got into fundraising mm-hmm. and, and what it is your company does. So I, I'm probably one of those uh, very unusual people that um, actually um, started fundraising and could walk. Um, I remember going door to door with my mother in the days when people lived in small communities and you could solicit door to door. And we went door to door for the Heart Association and for the March of Dimes. And so it was instilled within in me as a very young child. Both of my parents were involved in community activities that included fundraising. Um, but for real, um, when I graduated from college and from my master's program at the New School, um, I had been studying international relations, and I went to work for the Unitarian Church at the United Nations, not knowing that my office wasn't funded. That part of my job, in addition to being at the UN, was to fundraise. And I turned out to be exceptionally good at the fundraising part, and this goes this is long before we ever had courses and we ever had people to teach us what to do. Um, but when I decided that I had had enough of the UN, I um, actually looked for a full-time job in fundraising and went to Stanley Isaacs Neighborhood Center, actually was a full-time development person doing all elements of fundraising. Um, J.C. Giver happened uh, pretty quickly after that. I went and worked for a consultant briefly and then started J.C. Giver. So what are the main services that J.C. Giver offers? Um, well, and you described us as grant writers, which is absolutely true. It's one of our hallmark services. But we're basically a full-service um, consulting company for nonprofits, and that means that we do assessments of fundraising, um, if if the board is thinking that there should be new different things happening, we'll come in and look and help a, a staff decide, um, can they expand, can't they expand, what are the logical areas. Um, also, something similar to that, a feasibility study before a major capital campaign. We do capital and endowment work. Um, and. The institutional part of fundraising can always be part of those, but for example, my the campaign that I've just finished um, is a hundred million, and it was in West Palm Beach. Mm. So, needless to say, there were a few donors, and the last gift was a twenty million dollar gift. Wow. The prospect hadn't even been identified when we started, that's and amazing. that's what you look for. Um, so, we're we're far more than grant grant writers. Mm-hmm. We certainly know that world. It's an important world because of my having written the Guide to Proposal Writing. Um, But beyond that, we do um, individual major gifts work, um, 
We do feasibility studies and therefore capital campaigns and endowment campaigns. And actually, I, I must say, when we first became acquainted with each other, I was a little bit starstruck because I had read the proposal guide for the Foundation <laughs> right. Center and the fact that I got to meet the Jane Giever who wrote the book, literally wrote the book on fundraising right. proposals, was really exciting for me. So we're going to focus our talk today a little bit on institutional funders because I know Absolutely. we can talk about all the different aspects of fundraising and we only have 20 minutes together. So can you tell me a little bit about how you've seen the fundraising landscape, particularly institutional fundraising, change over the, the last 10 years? Um, I, I, one, of the, one of the key things that I think is both good and bad and that I'm concerned about is the fact that grant makers are taking time off from nonprofits. Mm. So um, we've seen this happen with almost all the major grantors um, in New York City where um, you will have been funded three or four years and all of a sudden the grant maker says, you know what, you have to take a year off or you have to take two years off. Um, Sometimes that's communicated very thoroughly. Most times it is not. And I understand the need to take time off because I probably have somebody I'm trying to get funded from that very same grant maker. Um, but it needs to be communicated. And it needs to be clear to a nonprofit that they can come back or that they can't come back. Um, so those, the, I, that's one very big trend because mm -hmm. I see it affecting some organizations that are doing some very fine work and it's hard to deal with because frequently these are big grants and it's hard to replace them. Can you say a little <clears throat> bit about the, the rationale behind why foundations would do that? They're looking out the, so people like me are there with other organizations that haven't been funded and we're trying to get the grant maker to pay attention to them. And nine times out of 10, they're equally strong mm -hmm. um, as the organizations that are, that are being funded. So that's number one. Number two, grant makers start to move in different directions. Mm -hmm. And let me use an example here in New York, the Altman Foundation. Um, <clears throat> most nonprofits that have been funded by Altman for a while are now finding that they're in a position of uh, decreasing grants and then no grants for a couple of years. But what that's allowing them to do as a grant maker is move in a new direction, mm -hmm. which I find very interesting. And they are moving in some new directions. Mm -hmm. And then the, the other issue that I'm seeing, um, and this is at a, at a point where we have to remember the stock market has been so strong. Mm -hmm. Yes, there have been ups and downs, but that's very recent. On the whole, for the last nine years, the stock market's been really good. And that means that the grant makers' endowments are very strong. And yet mm -hmm. some of them actually want to build their endowments even more. And that's oh, one of the reasons that they're doing this. So I think there are three key ones. One is new grantees. The second is moving in different directions, and the third um, is to build their own endowments. Easier or harder for new nonprofits to get institutional funding? Because on the one hand, I, I think there is some appeal for you know, new, shiny programs the new idea. on the block. Yeah. On the other hand, though, I think it's very difficult to get a toehold into institutional funding, and I know institutional funders like to fund in groups. So yes. What are your thoughts yeah. about that? Yeah, both are correct. Um, and again, you really have to be persistent. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and that's something that, that we're always saying to organizations that come to us for this kind of assistance, that it could take a year before they finally start to see results. So it mm -hmm. really means carefully identifying 
the grant makers that a new organization is going to go to and really being persistent in the outreach and not taking one or two no's because one or two no's are nothing on the, the landscape of th this kind of grant making um, because once you get a yes you could be funded for 10 or 15 years or you could be funded periodically for a whole lot longer than that so it's worth knocking on the door. That's an interesting question. Do you have a sense of what a, a successful percentage of grants funded would be? I mean, are we talking about a 30% hit rate? Are we talking about 50%? What's it's pretty hard to say that globally mm -hmm. um, because it will depend on how big the, the prospect pool is and um, how well the organization is known. If they're not known at all, mm -hmm. um, it's going to take them longer. Mm -hmm. if, if they are fairly well known, it, they'll get more money and it'll come faster. Mm. So it's, it's a dependent variable. This might be too broad a question, but obviously there are some main components of a successful proposal. Can you talk about what those might be and some mistakes that you see people make when they, when they write proposals? Um, number one, the proposal has to be short enough and it has to be focused on the project. It is shocking how many organizations want to focus on the organization to the detriment of the project. It's like, oh, well, and by the way, there's this project we want you to fund. Right. So um, keeping it short, keeping it focused on the project is very important. The budget has to reflect what the project is all about. Mm -hmm. And once again, organizations fail to do that. Um, there, there are grant makers who will go to the budget and look at it first, and there are other grant makers who will read the narrative first, and they don't read it, they skim it. You know, so that's why short um, uh, information that isn't always laid out in narrative, but sometimes uses bullets or uses um, some other indentation so that it's easy for the, grant, for the grant maker to read through it can be very helpful to them. I would also add, uh, I think it's important for folks to not be too jargony in their use of acronyms and the assumption yep. that people know what you're talking yep. about is yep. often not a correct assumption, wouldn't you say that? Yes, absolutely. That's a, that's a very important one. And we sometimes don't even know that we're talking jargon. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> so. it's, true. You know, it's often said that, to your point, how well you're known may, or, may affect how much funding you receive. Mm -hmm. So how much of it is who you know versus what you do? I think what you do comes first. If you don't really fit a grant maker and you know that grant maker or somebody on your board does, it's going to be very hard for the grant maker to justify making a grant. Mm -hmm. it, it's the work that you're doing and going to the grant makers where it's a fit. And then if you can support that with someone on staff who knows someone or someone on the board who knows someone, that will make that will make all the difference. And I had a, a conversation with someone this morning um, around connections that existed and they had been getting gifts of like two thousand five hundred two thousand dollars five thousand dollars maybe ten thousand dollars at most from two grant makers one of whose foundation has assets of a billion dollars and the other one gives grants in the millions of dollars mm. and so they, they were using their connections, but they're using their connections not to get enough money. Got it. And once I knew what the connections were and could look at the assets and knew that the organization was a fit, I came back with an idea 
that I think we'll be taking to both of these grant makers mm -hmm. that would help move the organization forward in its own strategic plan. So I think the other issue uh, with all of this is that you never do something just to get the money. Mm -hmm. You do it because it's good. It fits what your organization is all about. It moves you forward on your strategic plan, and it fits what the grant maker is all about. So the connections are important, but I never want to push a connection when the organization is not a fit. It's yeah. just not going to work. Yeah, and I, I want to unpack a little bit about what you said too, because I do think it's important to do your research. Yes. Right? To your point, if you hadn't done your research, you wouldn't have known that they had all of these assets. It's also important to ask for more, because right? I think sometimes yeah. we are not bold and courageous enough to go for the big gift. I think a lot of new fundraisers think that submitting a proposal is the the first and last step of the process. And I think both you and I know that it is a step in a much larger mm -hmm. process. I'm wondering if you can walk me through what a really good process looks like from identification through cultivation to solicitation to stewardship. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the cultivation comes be even before a proposal is submitted. Mm -hmm. I, th I think um, I'm going to start with the organization has to really know what they want to do and where they're going so that a couple of really good proposals can be written that will articulate that. And what we said earlier about proposals being brief enough, not having jargon, having a budget that's reflective of what the project is all about. Um, then use doing the research, and that's so easy today. Um, there are a lot of grant makers who have on, uh, online presence, um, and where they don't, using the Foundation Center's directory online, called FDO, Foundation Directory Online, um, is really worthwhile, uh, because you'll get a very good sense from looking at the grant makers 990 of who they're funding. And I want to look for a similar organization with a similar project, or at least in the same category, to say that this is a funder that we should be pursuing. Um, once you've got that, it's then following their guidelines, and it might be an online application or an LOI. It might be a hard copy application. We still have 75 to 80% of proposals going out of our office that are hard copy, mm. which is pretty amazing. That we spend amazing. all of our time on the online, but the hard copies are still huge. Um, so once the once the proposal is, is out the door, whenever possible, there should be interaction from the staff of the organization with the grant maker, um, a follow-up to make sure they've received it, um, some cultivation, um, a little pushing for an appointment. Um, most grant makers have a due diligence process, and once the proposal is in the door, they're going to do their own due diligence, and they want time to do that. Mm -hmm. But once they've done that, then they're amenable to an appointment if they think they're going to fund you, right. because then it's a good use of their time. Sure. So really using that appointment well, um, in the interim, continuing to be in communication with them, send them things that make sense. Mm -hmm. um, and I go back to the proposal to say not overload it with things, mm -hmm. but use those extra things as part of cultivation. Mm -hmm. So you're developing a relationship, mm -hmm. and I think people forget that. That's right. Um, and it's a relationship that includes people, and so getting to know those people, working with those people, helping their job be easier, as well as helping your nonprofit get the dollars in the door to do good work. That makes a lot of sense. The other thing I, I'd love you to speak on is I think sometimes as fundraisers, we forget that 
getting the check is not the end of the process. Yeah, right. Grant proposals, there are reporting obligations, yes. but also I think good stewardship obligations. Can you yeah. speak a little bit about yeah. that? Absolutely, knowing when the report is due um, and not forgetting. I, the biggest frustration from grant makers is someone they've taken a risk on and then the report doesn't come in. Um, the grant makers complain, you, you never tell us what you did with our money. So getting the reports in, but in the interim, it's inviting the grant maker to come and visit, um, to have them feel a part of the program, mm -hmm. and to get to know what the program is all about, and the staff and the people being served. I think that's a very big piece, and there are many grant makers that are willing to do that. It's not everybody, but you'll get to know that very quickly. And so I think it's following the instinct that, of information that you learn as you get to know the grant makers. Um, but that ongoing cultivation, making sure the report is in, and also knowing from the grant maker, when can I come back and ask for more money? Mm. Because I think a big mistake is you get the grant, you do the report, and you say, well, wasn't that nice? Well, you want a relationship here. You don't want to just drop it. You want to keep moving, and you want to go back and ask for more money. And for most grant makers, you're able to do that. And we just talked about the fact that some grant makers are beginning to ask people to take a break. Um, that's not everybody. And for a lot of grant makers, um, a smaller gift might come in year after year. There might be a large commitment for a couple of years, and then the grant maker might take a break. So this is all in very individualistic for the grant maker. Got it. The takeaways that are continue to cultivate a relationship, yep. good communication, partnership, mm -hmm. stewardship, all of the common sense things that mm -hmm. fundraisers should do. This might be a bit of a hard question, but knowing that a lot of my listeners have small nonprofits, uh, maybe sort of in the million to $2 million range, and therefore small development offices, where would you recommend that they spend their efforts between all of the different potential revenue streams that they mm -hmm. could cultivate? Mm -hmm. Um, my bias is, is the institutional, mm -hmm. and um, it's pretty clear, though, that, it, that foundations and corporations are going to make grants. Um, you can get those grants without having somebody who knows somebody on the board kind mm -hmm. of relationship mm -hmm. if what you're doing fits what the grant maker is all about. So actually, the studies show that there is less time invested in institutional and more return for the time that is invested, which is really amazing. Yeah. Um, secondly, usually small organizations don't have an individual constituency, but if there is an individual constituency that has affluence, then uh, reaching out to those individuals, uh, because 80% of all the money given is given by individuals completely separate from whether they're involved with a foundation or have their own foundation or run a company and give contributions. So that 80% is really worth pursuing. Mm -hmm. And it's realizing that if you have a budget of $2 million, you're not asking somebody for $2 million. You're asking someone for some reasonable percentage mm -hmm. of what your operating budget looks like and making them feel good by asking for something that's as specific as possible. Um, working the institutional, working the individual. Um, lots of organizations immediately say, we're going to do events. We're going we're gonna to have a ball. We're going to have a gala. We're going to have a race. Yep. It's, a huge, it's a huge use of staff time. Mm -hmm. And frequently, the amount of money raised against the staff investment is very poor. Mm. Um, 
if you can use the event as a way to get to know individuals, then it's worth it, as long as you break even. Um, to lose money is not acceptable. Yeah, I've also found that it's hard to convert event donors to long-term donors. I mean, it does yeah. happen, but the conversion rate is not yeah. great in yeah. my experience. Yeah. Can you say a little bit about corporate funding? Because I know at Breakthrough that was a, fair, a relatively small percentage of our portfolio overall, mm -hmm. and I just wonder if that's true across the board and what you see in the trends of corporate giving. Yeah, I'm glad we're talking about corporations too because um, historically, corporate giving has not been um, very high. It's when you look against um, foundations and individuals, it's been about four percent, mm. which is pretty poor. Um, and it's gone down in the U.S. because of all the purchase of U.S. companies outside the U.S. So you now have a donor who gave in a particular geographic area in the U.S. and the and that corporation is now giving globally. Mm. So the original place in the U.S. now has lost its donor. Um, but what I'm seeing, which is which is very encouraging, is the corporation that wants to give a gift but wants to have a way for their employees to be engaged. Mm -hmm. And nonprofits have to really think about how can we engage the volunteers. And this is really the hook. Um, and I'm just going to mention a couple. Um, Newberger Berman has really positioned itself um, uh, incredibly by uh, engaging volunteers and actually having an entire week of this um, and getting to know nonprofits very well that way. Um, we're seeing National Grid locally do far more of that. Herman Miller um, doing far more of that. There are many, many grant makers that where it's worth it for the nonprofit to figure out how can we engage volunteers and make it worthwhile. Um, I think the elephant in the room for this is Goldman Sachs because Goldman Sachs for years has um, used this as a way to engage their volunteers. And um, so you not only want to find a mechanism, you want to find a mechanism that's going to be valuable for your constituents, but also is going to be a valuable opportunity for the volunteer from the company. That's how you get the dollars yeah. these days. Yeah, that's so interesting. Actually, I'm planning to do another episode on CSR, Corporate Great. Social Responsibility, Great. for yeah. those who don't know the acronym. I'll <laughs> right. stop being jargony, right? Uh, because I do think it's a really interesting trend yeah. in corporate. Giving. Are there any general rules of thumb with respect to a balanced portfolio of different revenue streams? In other words, we know that diversification is important for long-term sustainability, but do you have a sense of what the different buckets should look like and percentages? Um, if a nonprofit has access to wealthy individuals and the individuals are giving as individuals, um, if they can meet the mark that happens nationally, which is 80% of the money coming from individuals, followed by about 15% from foundations and 5% from corporations, that, that would be fabulous. Um, I don't see very many organizations that actually meet that. And so usually it's much more like 50% from foundations and maybe a couple of percentage points from corporations and then individuals coming in through events, which we've already talked about not liking very much, but annual appeal mm -hmm. um, events and direct solicitations. I would put so much more emphasis on the direct solicitation and then if necessary, followed by the by the annual appeal. And I don't want to leave out social media, mm. but the reports tell us that P 
people have too many options, and when they have too many options, they don't give at all. Mm -hmm. And that often um, social media is simply taking the place of an annual appeal gift. The size is certainly very small, and that's uh, that's something to be considered. Um, organizations need to look at it and decide if, it's, if social media is going to work for them. It's so funny you said that because I was literally thinking just this morning about Giving Tuesday and the fact mm -hmm. that it's now really become just my inbox getting clogged up by a million nonprofits mm -hmm. asking for money. And so for any of you out there listening, if you can figure out a better way to do Giving Tuesday, uh, I think go crack the code on something because I, I frankly just end up deleting most of them, if not all of them. And that's the too many options. You know, either an organization gives too many options or you're inundated, for example, at that one time of year. A little bit about private family foundations. I know that Obviously, they've always existed, but mm -hmm. in the last couple of years, with the incredible wealth that we're seeing amongst mm -hmm. individuals, there seem to be a lot more private family foundations that are set up, but aren't generally on the radar. So how do people find out about private family foundations? Let's go back to the research that we talked about. Um, very few of them are going to have websites, mm -hmm. and so it's doing searches in your geographic area on the foundation directory online, mm -hmm. which is possible to do. And the list will be arrayed largest donors to smallest. Mm -hmm. So you're going to see a lot of donors that you don't know because they're family foundations. Um, and because I do a lot of research, I will comment that the amount of money that has gone into foundations over the last couple of years has been extraordinary. Um, as a matter of fact, the end of 17 saw more money go into people's individual foundations than ever before because people had no idea what would happen in terms of taxes. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was easier for them to just plunk the money into their foundation. Um, those foundations, especially the ones that are primarily directed by individuals, have really been the beneficiary of lots of investment. Um, another piece that we haven't talked about that I think people should be aware of are the donor-designated funds that are at places like Fidelity and Schwab. And those are a little frustrating because they also got a huge amount of money at the end of the fiscal year. But unlike a, a standard foundation, there isn't the openness and the accountability. The Fidelity people do a great job making suggestions about if you get a gift from someone who's in our circle, you should cultivate that person. Mm. Don't cultivate us because we're not the decision maker. Cultivate that individual. So um, being aware that that money is out there, and if you get a gift from a Fidelity or a Schwab or whatever, um, that you make sure that you take care of the individual who was the donor, and you'll always know who that is. So if someone wanted to get started with that, though, with the program officer at the bank be the, the first gatekeeper, and then... No. They, really? they, um, so Fidelity and Schwab and et cetera, they won't help you at all. They say when you, when you get a gift and the gift has come through us, then cultivate the individual. There's almost no way to know whether an individual has money in any of those places. The, the one thing you can do, what I've seen happening is um, somebody has a private 
foundation that is an open access foundation and we can research it and you see as part of their giving that they put they gave 20 million dollars to Schwab mm. so now you know that there is a fund there but it, it doesn't help you to go to Schwab because they won't accept an application it's funny you mentioned it because I, I do remember a couple of instances where checks would sort of magically yes. show up and right. we didn't know who it was from but we knew you know it was Schwab or Fidelity and yeah. then there was a lot of sleuthing that happened, but it was like a magical check. Yeah. There was no process. There was no proposal. I didn't cultivate anyone. I mean, listen, I like checks that show up out of nowhere, but I'd also like to know where they come from yeah. and, and how I can get more of that. Yeah. And, and I, th I, I think that what will happen, though, down the line is that we're probably... Um, the government is going to start to look at, at how much money that represents and say, we don't have transparency here, and figure out a way that there will be transparency. Mm -hmm. so. so last question. Obviously, institutional fundraising is dependent on good metrics and being able to show that yes. your programs yeah. and services really have positive yeah. outcomes. What if there's a small nonprofit that is just starting or doesn't have metrics? Is it impossible to approach institutional funders if you're at the beginning stages of that? Um, I, you're, you're sharing the promise. You're, you're sharing what it is that you intend to do. Mm -hmm. And usually a grant maker who's going to fund a smaller nonprofit or a startup is going to accept that kind of information and is investing in your good ideas knowing that the metrics will follow. If mm -hmm. the metrics don't follow, that becomes the problem. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, Jane, thank you so much. So I'm going to include information about J.C. Giver in our show notes. So if anybody has any questions or wants to reach out to Jane, you'll be able to find her information in the show notes. So Great. thank you so yeah. much, Jane. Thank you, Rhea. Always a pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Je suis de